Welcome to Level with Emily. This is music by composer Lenny Moore for Mentors. Now, you might remember Lenny as a video game composer, but he also does film and TV. This album is a personal project for Lenny. It's a big band album. And I'll tell you what, you're going to go to school in this episode. And I'm about to explain why by using the word legendary a few too many times. You'll learn about legendary record producer Arif Martin. He uh, just such an um, uh, influential record producer. He crafted the sound of artists like Aretha Franklin, Shaka Khan, Queen, Nora Jones. The list is lengthy, and Lenny will explain more about Arif Martin. Another legend, drummer Peter Erskine, he plays on this album, and Peter Erskine was an integral part of two of the most famous fusion bands from the 70s and 80s, Weather Report and Steps Ahead. And Peter, like I said, plays on this album. It's so amazing. And you'll learn about legendary jazz pianist Toshiko Akiyoshi, one of my personal favorite jazz pianists. And just as a side note, one of my favorite albums of hers is called Top of the Gate. It's a live one. Check it out. It's so good. And Lenny took composition lessons from her. At one point, Lenny shows me portions of the score for um, uh, one of the tracks on the Mentors album. So that's great incentive to go check us out over on YouTube because you'll see that part on the YouTube video. Subscribe and get notifications, all those things, so you don't miss any of our new videos of um, uh, these conversations. We also briefly talk about Outcast 2. Uh, that's going to come out soon, I think this year, 2023, at some point. Um, and of course, Lenny, his very first video game score was the first Outcast. So we talk about Outcast 2 uh, a, a little bit. But mentorship, that is what is at the heart of this entire project. Lenny writing music to honor the musicians who shaped his own musicianship. It's very powerful. Um, and just by the craftsmanship of these tracks, you can tell that Lenny just has so much reverence for these people. It's very, very cool. Um, as I mentioned, check us out on YouTube. He shows me that score somewhere past the hour mark. It's like an hour 10 or something like that. Um, Discord, that link in the show notes. And then if you can join us on Patreon and support us financially, we would be so grateful for that. You'll get stuff as a result. All right. Here is Lenny Moore talking about his big band album, Mentors. Uh, I think for this project, it was a personal project. Uh, I've been wanting to do a big band album forever. And... Uh, and since I'm old, forever is a long time. And, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, so about four, three or four years ago, I had this idea. It's just like, I was just thinking about everybody who was a mentor for me in my artistic path and uh, specific people along the way, all the way back to, you know, probably high school. And just how cool it was that, you know, some of them just took a little time to say the right thing yeah and, and it's always it's also amazing like or actually it was before, was it before? no it was high school i was thinking back to the very one of the very first people that i uh, was probably 16 or 17 um and you know like one of the one of the things that's kind of special about that is is that you know like the idea of a mentor for an artist is 
Yeah, the traditional one is that master apprentice relationship. You study with a particular trumpet professor, and you know, and you know, and uh, you know, or in, in the case of in my, you know, like my composing media composing world, um, studying with Bill Kettering for conducting, mm. uh, and Bill was a student of of Liam Barzan and Arturo Toscanini. So I started with him when he was wow. eighty. And I studied with him until he passed away when he was about 87. And, uh, and this was when I was living in Los Angeles. And that mm. mentorship was amazing. And the Toscanini stories are pretty fun, too. And, <laughs> and his passion, man, at 80 years old, he was still practicing piano because he was like, ah, my chops aren't what they used to be. Oh, geez, <laughs> you know, wow. and, yeah. and, he, and he had macular degeneration, so he was blind, you know, and... Uh, uh, and I don't care if this is bad karma, but you know, like uh, lessons every Monday, he would kick my butt and I would always smile about it. And, um, in the first lesson, he, um, I'll get to the part I'll divulge <laughs> later the drop. Um, <laughs> the first lesson he said, you know, show me, show me how you normally conduct. And we just put on, you know, like a Beethoven symphony and I was conducting. Um, and, uh, he goes, you and I have to have an agreement. Uh, you have to agree that you're the student <laughs> and that I'm the teacher. And the reason for that is because what you're just showing me is that you're conducting the way you think conducting looks like, and I'm going to show you what conducting is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And okay. I was like grinning ear to ear going, I'm in, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it was just yeah. like the perfect, the perfect thing to say, you know, and, and, you know, even, you know, even in my uh, adjunct professorship stuff that I do at the uh, San Francisco Conservatory, you know, sometimes I have to have that little conversation with some students because yes. they're not they're not really interested in being a student sometimes, and yep. and you yep. know, and it's and they're all wonderful and all that, but you know, like, yeah, for sure. You know, when you're in your early twenties, you think you know everything. I, I was that way, and <laughs> you know, and <laughs> you know, and it's just like you know, it's just an illusion. And yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so the, the the mic drop part of this Bill story is he had a little dog named Munchie, Munchie. and Bill was so Munchie was so cute, his little fluffy little dog, and um, I couldn't tell what breed it was because Munchie was in a bad state and. <laughs> And, and Bill was blind and his, his sense of smell was gone and all that kind of, and Munchie in the middle of the lesson would just drop something <laughs> right in the middle of the room. <laughs> oh, no. And, and he'd see me like kind of wrinkle my nose a little bit. And he's like, what, what's wrong? And he had a really gravelly voice. And I was yeah, like, yeah, well, yeah. Munchie just left a present in the middle of the room. And he's like, Oh, and then he'd reach down and grab a newspaper and just toss it over the top of it and go, okay, let's continue. <laughs> He didn't have time for that. Could not be bothered. Like, I'll fix it later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, so, yeah, but a lot of fond memories. So, this, yeah. getting back to this idea of mentorship, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, like this idea for the album came uh, with this concept of just having – every tune on the album represents somebody who was a mentor for me. And, and yeah. you know, just in the writing, thinking about who those people were. And sometimes it's a quality of who, who they were as an artist. And sometimes it was just something uh, that they said to me. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we, we can get into some of that because there's, 
you know, as far as who things were dedicated to the opening track manic is dedicated to weather report and steps ahead, which, you know, for me, you know, in this, uh, late seventies, um, early eighties, that was, you know, my college days, uh, was in the early eighties. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, close to up to, up to the nineties and stuff like that, those bands were just super influential for me as, yeah. as a musician who was a jazz musician originally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, you know, Manic was that, uh, Arif Martin, the record producer for Atlantic records. Uh, I got to meet, uh, several times. And then his son, uh, Joe, uh, went to college with me at Berkeley college mm-hmm. of music and we became fast friends. Uh, and, uh, I heard lots of Arif stories and, uh, um, uh, and then, uh, and just, you know, like I've always had this sort of dual thing, especially early on of there's me as the creator, as a composer, orchestrator, arranger, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's me as a, a music producer. And mm. that was always a big deal for me okay. uh, all the way back to college. So, uh, so, uh, so the second one's dedicated to him. You know, just thinking about different things I'd learned from, you know, in in Arif's case, it was, uh, you know, I had a few encounters with him and it, that were wonderful. But you know, just from afar, every album that he put out, everything he touched as a producer mm. uh, was, you know, a thing. Can you give us some and examples? I can give you a great example. Yeah, let's hear. So, it. okay, so in Arif's. I don't know, 800 to a thousand albums that he produced. Yeah. So the, the early albums were like Aretha Franklin albums oh, and okay. all those Chaka Khan albums, oh. uh, you know, that, you yeah. know, like what you, you know, the songs like what you going to do for me and stuff like that. That's, yeah. that's his touch okay. and his arrangements, uh, you know, like all the, all the background oh, okay. arrangements and stuff were him. Um, oh. and then later in his life, uh, before he passed, uh, he did the first two Nora Jones albums. So that oh. when you listen, when you listen to that first album, yeah, and don't know why, yeah, that yeah, song, yeah, yeah, and you listen to her voice, and this was sort of a a, a very specific Reef Martin thing. Yeah. Um, part of his production style was it was somewhat invisible, in the okay. sense that it wasn't like, uh, you know, it wasn't like, you know, like you know. Uh, other producers I like are uh, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, the Janet Jackson oh, albums and yeah. things like that, right? Minneapolis, all day. Yeah. And, but <laughs> they, as producers, they have a sound yeah. that's yeah. distinctively theirs. And mm-hmm. they have a, a fingerprint that's on the albums that they produce. Arif didn't have that kind of a fingerprint. It mm. was more like his thing was he'd listen to the artist's voice and he would try and find the little magical setting on the EQ and yeah, yeah, whatever yeah whatever uh, huh. whatever used on the production side to bring out and emphasize those like amazing qualities of a voice. And when you listen uh, to the first Nora Jones album yeah, and specifically, you know, like that song, don't know why is one of those where you listen to that voice has so magical sounding, yeah, you know, and granted it's coming from Nora. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. You know, there's that, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. there's also like how it was captured mm-hmm, and mm-hm. and how oh, the much, choices yeah. on the production side of how it was mixed and where mm-hmm. it sits. And when you listen to the third album, so Arif did the first two, and then Nora. Uh, and I don't know if he had passed away by the time she got to the third album or if mm-hmm, it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just a choice to kind of uh, try somebody new. Um, but when you listen to the, the albums following the first two, like her voice is treated a little differently, you know, and it's okay. still her voice. Yeah, yeah. You know? But there's just something about it that's it's kind of um, a little mysterious what he mm-hmm. does, you know, and yeah. uh, uh, unless, as unless you're looking over his shoulder. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> going, what, what did he tweak? Yeah, right, <laughs> you know, right, yeah. You know. Just a 3K, just a little bit. <laughs> so just a little something, you know. So, mm-hmm. so that, you know, that's an example of, of, you know, like that listening from afar yeah. thing. Um, you know, and some of that's also, you know, my training. You know, like you, when you get really mm-hmm. hardcore ear training skills. Yeah. You know, and it, it's, a, it's a weird thing because it's like, because of my jazz background, there's a way we listen to right. music yeah. that's different than in the way we, you know, and in some ways it helps me transcribe stuff if I'm using my ear training skills for that. Uh, you sure. know, like we listen to a jazz drummer and I'm listening to what the left hand is doing and I'm listening to what the right hand is doing and what each foot is doing. And, yeah. you know, and I have just this ability to kind of block out everything else that I'm hearing and just zoom in on things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so, part of my enjoyment of jazz is dialing into the different sure. elements of like, you know, what the bass player is playing in a moment, what the drummer is doing, how the drummer yeah. might react to what the sax player did or something like yep. that. And, yeah. And that, yeah. and that's part of my enjoyment of, of that particular medium. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's the same with music production. I just start dialing in to these things like, sure. you know, like in the Nora Jones example, just dialing into her voice, mm-hmm. you know, and just all the frequencies and what's being emphasized, mm-hmm. what's might be de-emphasized mm-hmm. and, um, and then everything else in the mix. Yeah. Cause yeah. it's all about, um, you know, it, it's funny. It's just like, even these days I've learned more about mixing. I've always been a good mixer, but I've learned more about mixing the last couple of years. Um, partially from doing this album. Uh, but partially just from um, seeing what other people do in the mix process. So yeah, that that sort of ear training component is, is just definitely a part of, a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's sort of the Arif example, um, you know, and then there's other people who's like, you know, there's a guy who is like the head of music for a whole, you know, the, where the high school that I went to up in Everett, Washington. Okay. Um, he was the, the, you know, sort of the music, uh, what do you call it? Supervisor for the whole district and stuff like that. But oh, he okay. had a class at my high school. And nice. he was the one that you know, Ken Krantz was his name. And he got me into playing electric bass because okay. he was like, he's sort of a famous dude in jazz choir circles because, uh, he was a composer. He wrote original material and he had a jazz choir called the Del Sonics. And they would very much in the Manhattan transfer, um, uh, singers unlimited kind of world. Sure. Of yep. Late, late seventies. Um, 
that sort of musical style. And you hear some, some of that kind of stuff with um, uh, Jacob Collier these days. Um, it's that sort of vocal harmony. Yeah. Uh, that's jazz influences with really rich kind of colors and stuff. So Ken was one of those kind of writers. And so the band, the, the bass player was graduating. Okay. And I was, I was a freshman and he goes, we're needing a new bass player for next year. And I think you'd, you know, if you're interested, we'll give you a bass and, uh, oh. to use and, uh, um, auditions are in two weeks. If you want to give it a shot, two weeks. <laughs> So and what I, was like, your instrument before that, Lenny? I played trombone at the time, but I'd played okay. brass instruments all from trumpet through um, baritone horn in junior okay. high and then trombone from junior high to high school. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and then electric bass. And I like, that was the, that was my, my, you know, my future, so to speak, my, my other wife, um, <laughs> the, you know, um, yeah, I just loved playing the bass and like, I just started yeah. digging into it and I was like, mm -hmm. took on the challenge. Two weeks later, I auditioned, was in, in the group and wow. you know, we were doing our little festival thing and, um, and having a good time. And, uh, and then I was just, also in the year training camp, I was playing along with records all the time. Uh, yeah. Especially because there's so many great bass players out there for, for people who play bass. And for me, that time period, we're talking earth, wind and fire, right? Yeah. Larry Graham, yeah. uh, Marcus Miller, uh, uh, you know, just all these amazing Anthony Jackson, um, mm -hmm. Uh, these just amazing bass, electric bass players. Jocko Pastorius was huge influence yep. for me. Mm -hmm. So hence weather report and all weather that. Weather report, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and then Jocko's own solo stuff. So yeah. Um, so yeah, so you know, that was that's an example. So all, all these different ones were part of it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. so each each track is dedicated to somebody and that that was sort of the beginnings of thinking about these people and then and then the other part of it was I've been on deadlines for like 30 plus years on media work. So, you know, like everything was like, <clears throat> you got to bang out this film score in a week or, or yeah. um, you know, actually more like a month and yeah. uh, 80 minutes of music, four weeks go. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and, and different video games, uh, mm -hmm. you know, some were like, um, some were more luxurious. Like the original outcast was a six month process mm, yeah which is really nice to be able to stop and think and go do i like this cue yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. do i want to make some adjustments you know yeah um yeah. you know versus you know like some of some of the projects i have done where it was like um we were supposed to have six months but you know, but for whatever reason the lawyers were like having back and forth and they had to work out their stuff and they would take five months of the six months to work right? out their thing <laughs> You know, of and then and then nobody was interested in changing the schedule. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was like, okay, you got a month. All right, All right. amazing. <laughs> Just yeah. get in there and go. Yeah. So so yeah so uh, uh, it was one of the one of the mandates I gave myself was no time limit, and I spent about a year in the writing, okay. uh, and just some some revisions were like, you know, revision ten on some of the pieces. Yeah. Uh, but the first drafts were like 95 to 98% of what you hear. Mm -hmm. 
there's some really fun uh, YouTube stuff that you posted with like MIDI. Yes. And I love hearing the MIDI renditions because yes. then, you know, the final product just sounds like it was sent from heaven or something, you know, it just is yeah. like, wah. But, uh, yeah. but that's totally. really fun to see. Uh, yeah. And the, it's the MIDI stuff. Yeah. And even with the MIDI, and with the MIDI stuff, one of the things that was interesting about, like, I'm pretty good at my, my MIDI rendering kind of thing, you know, it yeah, sounds yeah. pretty good. And, yeah. but you know, as far as the solos, that's all me and the MIDI version. Yeah. And, and, and it's just like, you know, some of the stuff's out of control and some of the stuff's just like, yeah. okay, well, that's not, some of it's kind of cool. And some of it's kind of like, I don't know, that's a piece of junk, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like even even um, when it came to figuring out how to record the album, uh, you know that's right. a, that's a whole section we can get into because COVID hit, and then my yep. idea of what the album was, how it was going to be produced, and what it was, how it was going to approach it, mm-hmm. like changed dramatically. Yeah, and so yeah, but yeah. you know the MIDI yeah. stuff was was fun uh, to kind of like start as a good starting point to kind mm-hmm. of like yeah do that and, yeah. and figure out. You know, for the players, you know, it, it at least gave them a starting point. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then another thing we can get into is just on the music production side. Yeah. Uh, there's certain things that were challenges in figuring out how to remote record an album yeah. and make it not sound like a remote recorded album. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> the magic formula everyone had to figure out over the last few years, right? I mean, because your intention always was to record it live. Like your initial yeah. pitch video is like, this has to be live because it's jazz yeah. and there's so much interaction yeah. and eye contact yeah. is so important and body motions when you're standing yeah. next to your fellow uh, saxophonist or whatever in the yeah. section, although those, they sit. <laughs> So do the trombones, but anyway. Right, right. Well, there, <laughs> but, know, there's a saxophone trombone love hate relationship going on. It's just like <laughs> the, the little spit valve on the trombone. Yeah, exactly. Always, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, your intent was live because yeah. you, your pitch yeah. was 2019, and then of course, I mean, yeah. How? What was the process like for you to make that pivot? I guess even emotionally, because your mm. dream was, yeah, you know, to right. do it this way, and then you're like, okay, yeah. well, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, like what would have been the goal would have been to record over two days at Capitol Records. Yeah. And, Such and, an iconic building. Yeah, even. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I was thinking of that. Yeah. Part. So I mean, we were recorded in, you know, any medium sized studio uh, to get 20 people together, mm-hmm. uh, but also schedules, you know, and stuff like that. That would all have been part of that production angle, which would yeah. be make sure we get everybody on the same schedule and then get yep. people uh, in there two days banging out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the whole thing with Capitol Records is, you know, it's a very storied room as far as a lot of Frank Sinatra and Atkin Cole albums and things like that recorded yeah. there. Uh, obviously, it's a great sounding room. Um, they got the plate reverbs in the basement, you know, and uh, <laughs> it was EMT plates. And that was part of a sound thing that Neve console. Um, mm. And so there was a th- 
there was all of that and um, microphone select collection, all you know, just every every aspect. And the the Nat King Cole Steinway that's still wow. there. You know, Jeez. I wanted I wanted that piano in the room. You know, yeah. it's just like, yeah. oh, can I get the Nat King Cole Steinway? You know, I, I was having some conversations originally with the studio mm-hmm. uh, on schedules and yep. things like that, and and then COVID kicked in. You know, right around the beginning of that year, and it literally because you asked this idea so like this transition and shifting mm-hmm. you know, like what I needed to do. It didn't take very long. It was oh, literally within five seconds when I went, Oh crap, I have to rethink this now. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So there was and no, then, yeah, you didn't even, and then I was, yeah. yeah and then I was just like, okay, I got to rethink this. What, you know, like how do I want to do this? And you know, so kind of turning on a dime, you know, but then, you know, then it's like, okay, now figuring out and, yep. and rescheduling everything mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and figuring out a strategy for, okay, how can I redo this? That, yeah. that, that took a little bit of working out. But one mm-hmm. of the things with that was I wanted to start with Peter Erskine. The drummer the yes. who played and, with Weather Report. Let's Yes, he did. I mean, and, and, and a million and other people. Ahead. Yeah. Like, so yeah, I mean, Weather Report steps ahead. Yeah. Peter was the drummer for, yeah. for many years for both of those groups. So, yeah. and he's one of my favorite drummers in the world. He's legendary. As far as, yeah. 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 You know, um, just, you know, the, the kinds of choices that he makes as he's performing are mm-hmm. just wonderful. And I, you know, I had known Peter for a bunch of years because okay. we'd done, I'd been doing, uh, orchestrations and arrangements for different composers in Los Angeles. And there was one particular composer that I worked with, um, and David Schwartz who did Northern Exposure and Arrested Development and stuff like that. And David was doing a film and he had Peter come in and play drums. And I was the first time I'd met Peter and he was just such a good dude. And, um, and such an amazing player. So it was just fun to just be there and hang with him and talk with him a little bit. And, uh, and then over the years we'd done some things, uh, there was, I'd done a couple of arrangements for him for a concert that he had done in London. And okay. so we got to collaborate a little bit and then mm-hmm. he's a huge, um, he's a huge fan of Eric Wolfgang Korngold. And really? Yeah. And film was composer, Joe's, but also a classical yeah. composer, beautiful yeah. violin concerto. Yes. Yeah. And one so, of my favorites. Yeah. So, uh, and, uh, you know, the way Peter told the story is he was touring with weather report and he was in the hotel and he was watching an older movie and heard this amazing music. And he was talking to Joe Zawinul about the next day. And Joe's like, Oh yeah, that's Eric Wolfgang Korngold. You should check him out (laughs) (laughs) or something of that nature. And and Peter just, you know, fell in love with, uh, that. So there's, there's these elements of like, you know, Peter's love for sort of classic film, Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, composers like Korngold and you know, yeah. so we had a lot of conversations about that where we nerd out about that stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's just he's just a really, really good, good human being and awesome. So, so when it came to the album early on, I wanted it, I wanted him on the album. It's like, hey man, yeah. you want to play on my album? I've got this idea, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Told him about it. <clears throat> he's like, yeah, man. Just let's see if we can get the schedule going. So, wow. so I wanted to start with him partially because. Um, because you know, like the MIDI was just more like, you know, tempo wise, you can kind of set up a click track and, and, um, there's a few, there's a few rubato kind of bits, which are tricky to do 
with going from like trying to create a click. Um, but I, f I figured out like sort of a click that would work. And then I knew that if the MIDI, if they just kind of, if everyone who played on it just played a little loosely, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's cause that's part of the vibe of what those sections are about. Yeah. 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 You know, but outside of those, there's like two rubato sections, everything else is in tempo. And, okay. uh, so it made it pretty, uh, pretty easy for, you know, maintain the tempo thing. And then, so Peter was basically playing to my MIDI tracks minus the drums. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. You know? Okay. And, yeah. And even with that, I told you, like I was doing soloing and stuff like that. He's like, Hey, can I turn the solos off? You know, cause it's <laughs> distracting me, you know? And I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. I'm not, you're not going to bruise my ego. No, it's right? just like, whatever, no, whatever you need to do, what you got to do, man, just <laughs> let me stay out of your way. And yeah, you know, you know it's all, yeah. it's all beautiful. So, so yeah, so he, you know, he, he was like, you know, he recorded, I think over two days and, oh, and did, did everything. He, yeah. He's it's, got a lot of nice solo space in that last track, which yes. is just yeah. great. And it, yeah, and and uh, yeah, last track intentionality, and also in the first track in Manic, there's um, there's a section where um, he's he's flailing and blowing. You yeah, know, flailing. Yeah. Flailing sounds negative, but flailing has always been a positive term for me. It's like for a drummer, when you tell for a sure, yeah. when you tell a drummer, man, flail. This is your play. This is your spot to kind of let loose and stuff. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's 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 sort of an arranged section where the rhythm section is still playing the harmony and kicking underneath mm -hmm. him, mm -hmm. and he's just kind of blowing through that. right before the little tenor sax solo that Andy Suzuki kind oh, of kills. Oh, man. Yeah. His sound. Yeah. His yes. fat, warm, yeah. hot, chocolatey tenor sound <laughs> is, it's just wonderful. Because, like, yeah. like I yeah. I love to listen to John Coltrane. Yeah. Love. But yeah. if I were to choose my favorite sound on a tenor, it would never be his, right? It's just not my favorite yeah, sound. I'll take Joe Henderson yeah. any day or Andy Suzuki. Okay. You know what I mean? Right. Like that. Yeah. I want that big, fat, warm, yeah. honk kind of thing. You yeah. Know? And, yeah. And oh. yeah. So to me, Michael Brecker is also in that category, you know, oh, as far geez. as. It, it, yeah. It's like yeah. a fire and, hose. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, in, I think with Andy's, you know, Andy's influences are people like Brecker, uh, sure. George Coleman and oh, uh, wow. and Henderson okay. is is probably in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there might be a tiny amount of Dexter, and actually, there's a little mm. Tom Scott. What? <laughs> you know, like his. Yeah. You know, like when I first met Andy, um, uh, he was 15 years old, and oh my so like God. so t two of my friends I've known forever are like Nick Manson on who played the keyboards. Oh, uh, and he's you know, fantastic! Yeah, and Nick's and awesome. Andy? And Andy. So Nick was 17. I was 18. I was a senior in high school. Um, and, uh, and Andy was 15 and we met, um, because there was a local big guy who was a singer, mm -hmm. uh, who was doing a big band thing. And, uh, he wanted arrangements of like Joe Williams kinds of tunes sure, and sure. like that yeah, yeah. back in the day. And so, so both Nick and I were doing arrangements for him. That's how we met. And, 
uh, and then Nick's like, Hey man, you should, you should come and jam with us. So it's just like, uh, at, at Nick's house, he had what we called the shack, which was, um, <laughs> it was like this external, like a, you know, they call they call them ADUs these days, but it's a, you know, like it's basically, it's just like a, a small, like granny, granny, like unit mother in right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're doing good if you got a mother-in-law suite. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is this is this is a shack. This is okay, not a suite. Okay. Gotcha. And, gotcha. <laughs> but yeah, so we'd play in the shack and just we just yeah. uh, we would would play report tunes and we would just jam nice, and, and yeah. play different tunes. We were doing we were transcribing stuff, so uh, we were just just playing jazz together. Yep. And so so with Andy, like at that time when he was about fifteen, he was way into Tom Scott and. Uh, so, and he was playing alto sax at the time. So he, okay. he was definitely like, and he was sort of a prodigy. He, he's just like, he's funny, man. He like barely practices and he sounds the way he sounds, you know? And, uh, wow. he's just, he's just wired to be that kind of yeah. amazing player. And, wow. uh, he does, he does practice. Well, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but you know, it's just like, you know, like for me, just comparing me and Andy. So as a player, I'm a, or I, I say it as in present tense. I am a really good bass player, but the reality is I'm a really rusty, formerly good bass player. <laughs> um, uh, and I had to work really hard to get there. You know, oh, as yeah. far as you just like six, eight hours a day of practice yep. during mm-hmm. the college days to get that motor memory going and, and uh, yeah. the coordination that kind of thing. But, you know, like yeah. going, going back to Andy and Nick, man, those, those friends have been around. They're some of my best friends and they've been around forever. Wow. And, and we inspire each other. And they were also, you know, one of the tunes, uh, which is the Samba called Two Peas in a Pod. That's dedicated to them. The title fits for who they are because they, they're definitely they're definitely that. Um, you know, some of the other mentors I should mention. So uh, the last tune on on the album is uh, "Intentionality." That's Toshigaki Oshi. Pioneering big band leader and composer arranger. She's amazing. And yeah, she's totally amazing. And uh, when I was 16, there was um, in in the Seattle area, Port Townsend, Washington is sort of like this little coastal town in the in the Puget Sound area, and mm-hmm. it is sort of an artist community. And they would every year have these workshops for kids, uh, artist workshops. So there's writing workshops and painting and whatever. And they had these music workshops and that's where I found my people, uh, yeah. because I was this weird kid in high school yeah. who was writing big band charts all the time right? or doing <laughs> things like that. And, yeah. uh, yeah, I was always writing music and, uh, 
and I was in the bands and stuff like that. And uh, I thought I was just this alien little kid and didn't, you know, like everyone, you know, I felt like kind of that way. And, mm-hmm. and then I went there and I realized there's people weirder than me. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> Cause there's like these people doing really avant-garde, like extended technique, like, sure. You know, like trombone multiphonics and, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, this yeah. one kid, who was like an amazing oboe player. They would just take his, the reed of his oboe and shove it into his cheek to make it distort and do all sorts of weird sounds <laughs> and things like that. And, and I'm just like, Oh my God, this is awesome. So yeah. one, one summer they did a workshop and the jazz composition component of it. Toshiko was the artist in residence. Wow. And only three people signed up for it. And so I got one-on-one with Toshiko for two weeks. Jeez. And, and so the whole story behind that, and this gives an example or a look into kind of when I think about mentorship and what was important. So there's something Toshiko said to me, uh, we had to prepare one big band chart to get performed at the end of the the time during the workshop by a professional group. Nice. And so it was all about, you know, like working one piece. And mm-hmm. so I'm working on this one piece and Toshka points to a particular bar in the saxophone section and goes, why is that there? And I'm 16. So my a typical 16 year old answer is, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, <clears throat> and, then she, and then she pressed me on it. She was like, no, 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 really. Why is this here? Mm-hmm. And I was, I was just like, I don't know. I just like it. She's like, good enough. And good she enough. falls. Cause you like yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And she goes, there has to be a reason why something's on the page. Yeah. And there has to be a reason after you review it, why it stays on the page. Sure. And at 16, man, that was, that was a life forming philosophy of writing for me. That, that is carried through my entire life. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's just that, that one little conversation with her. Mm-hmm. And granted, there was another thing I asked her if I could get a recommendation for Berkeley College of Music and she wrote one. So that was nice. nice. Yes. That, that, get, that gave me a full ride my first year. So, I, <laughs> wow. she, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So her and then a couple other people, I mentioned Ken Krantz, the, the vocal jazz mm-hmm. uh, guy. So he had written a letter and then uh, the guy who ran that workshop also had written a letter. So I think between those okay. three, yeah. it, got, it had pretty good coverage for that scholarship possibility. Nice. And, uh, yeah. Um, so that, that was super helpful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. and so yeah, Toshiko was super important to me. So the, the name of the, that last track is intentionality. And yeah. it, it, there has to be an intention why you have something mm-hmm. that you write something and there has to be intention as to like, there has to be reasons why it's going mm-hmm. to remain there. You know, As you're scrutinizing your piece after you've done your first draft of just making sure everything is exactly uh, 
your intention of what you're, what you're trying to say yep. and express. Yeah. So, yep. so stuff like stuff like that is, you know, on every track, there's these kinds of things where mm -hmm. there's little things from different people. Yeah. So with Nick and Andy, you know, like on the two peas in a pod, uh, Sama piece, you know, Andy plays amazing flute and, uh, yeah. as well as saxophones. Right. And, yep. uh, with that track, there's, um, there was this dynamic with Nick and Andy that's very unique to them. And they kind of nudge each other as they play. It's kind of like a dare. Okay. <laughs> it's like top this, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. So they kind of poke at each other as they play. It always makes me smile and laugh and stuff like that. But it, yeah. it's, it's this very loving kind of pushing each other to, mm -hmm. to kind of go deeper. Yeah. I think is a good way of describing it. And uh, and that's just, you know, it's, it's been their dynamic as they play together. They just, they're, they're kind of smiling at each other and their eye contact and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I wanted a piece that was sort of focused around this dynamic between the two of them. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that therefore it's Nick on the Fender Rhodes and Andy on a flute and, yeah. and uh, where they're, they're playing together. They're, they're kind of having more conversational kinds of playing. They both have these really featured solo moments in a piece like mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just, you know, it, it kind of fits with that. And then trying to write something cool around all that, <laughs> yeah. you know, like write, write a good tune, right. Really good harmony. Yeah. Um, you know, where, you know, they have something fun to solo over mm -hmm. is, is definitely kind of part of it. So, how did Wayne Bergeron end up on the album? I mean, he en he's on a lot of albums, but uh, he's on a lot of albums. Do, do you know him? I know Wayne. Oh and my so, God. like, yeah. See, Another most of these people just are legend, lead trumpet player, but also just trumpet yes. in general, but yeah. just legend trumpet player. Legendary lead trumpet player, legendary studio musician in mm -hmm. Los Angeles. And I've known Wayne since we were babies, almost. Uh, like, you know, when I was first in Los Angeles and okay. first starting in my career. <clears throat> Wayne was playing on some of those sessions, these independent wow. movies that I was involved in. And, mm -hmm. um, okay. And I love Wayne, man. He's like a good pal. And, <laughs> and uh, so like anytime I had horn section stuff, it was always Wayne Bergeron on trumpet, <clears throat> Andy Suzuki on saxophones, Alex Isles, who's another legendary trombone uh, session player in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Alex is on the ballad Essence. him okay. on that melody yeah. which is way high in the register he's <sighs> just he just plays it beautifully and, yep, and yep. does a great job so so it's all my horn sections if it was a if it was a three horn section it was wayne alex and andy okay and uh so they've always played with me and um and uh i would always refer them for things if i was working on a commercial and they were like hey this is like kind of a, a big bandy thing i'm like all right gotta get wayne and alex and andy in here you know it's <laughs> and 
so so some of it's some of it's that and wayne's um uh one of his nicknames is mr incredible because if you've seen the incredibles movie all that great lead trumpet stuff is him So that's very signature of Wayne, you know, and his, the thing about Wayne is really beautiful is he, um, he's got, there's certain kinds of what I call lead trumpet player tone, which is mm-hmm. very bright, forceful, and it, it sort of leads everybody. And so Wayne, Wayne's an awesome leader and he leads in how he plays, but he also leads, you know, with his personality, which is, you know. Sometimes he'll just tease you a little bit, you know, and that's enough to get you to kind of like yeah. up up your game a bit, you know, yeah. and, and stuff like that. brilliant brilliant player and then actually you know like as far as challenges with um with the uh this particular project and remote recording everybody so part of it was what i wanted to do i, I mentioned earlier that i i wanted to start with peter and mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. far as figuring out the or- order was i was going to do peter then i was going to get the bass stuff together and then i would add the keyboards and guitar stuff after the, the drum bass thing because that's more foundational in mm-hmm. the way i think about it sure um and then after the rhythm section was like together, then uh, the lead players in each section. So Andy would do all the lead saxophone stuff. Wayne would do the trumpet and Alex would do the lead trombones. And Wayne was sick at the time. He had posted publicly, he had tongue cancer oh, okay. and, and was going through chemotherapy and radiation treatments and stuff like that. So wow. he was sick for quite a bit. So it was just more, you know, man, I love him to pieces and I just wanted him to be well. And I was just checking with him, how you feeling and, and all that. And then he, you know, like he went through his therapies and then finally they didn't have to do any surgery to, you know, where sometimes they have to like take out part of your tongue and stuff like that. And for a trumpet player, mm-hmm. that's, that's an issue. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. So he basically, uh, he, he survived through all that and, um, uh, came out on the other side, and then it was more about kind of getting back up to speed mm-hmm. on his on his playing capabilities. So that was coming together, and just stayed in touch with him. And then we did we ended up doing all the saxophone section tracking, and I think most of the trombone section was done when Wayne when Wayne was feeling good and okay. and, and ready to tackle the trumpet stuff. So mm-hmm. and that and that's funny too because it's just like you know. Wayne, part of what happens in horn section writing and in big band writing specifically is lead trumpet player dictates the phrasing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But since Wayne was um, recovering, you know, Alex has known Wayne forever. So Alex was like, this is probably what I think Wayne would, would do. And, mm-hmm. you know, 
And then Andy's a great player and he's played the win a lot. So we kind of took our best guess at what we thought would be the way that Wayne might phrase it. And then it gets to Wayne. Wayne's like, those saxes are playing, those short notes too fat. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then he would lay down his track. And then, uh, like, I'd listen to it. And then, because Pro Tools, I could actually make the saxes less fat by just kind of, like, trimming up the ends of things, you know? Right. Um, you know, so uh, my Tools chops got pretty ninja level on this project, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, and like you wouldn't you wouldn't hear it, you know. But it, like yeah. you know, I wasn't trying to go for on the grid perfection or anything right. like that because that's right. that wasn't my role. Yeah, as, you know, for producing it, it had to feel right. So mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it's got a little bit of looseness, but you know, the things that were like egregiously too fat, I would like trim up and. Uh, Damn it, Wayne was right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just there's something about the the energy and the way certain notes yeah. sound. You, you mm-hmm. play a certain short note, a particular length, yeah, and, and it just energetically feels right. So, yeah, so, you know, like folks like Wayne and Alex, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks on the album that, that, you know, were just people that I either recorded with in the past or they were, they were friends Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's just like, it's an album full of love as far as, you know, like all these great musicians, the rhythm section, you know, like I played the electric bass stuff, which was a thing because like I mentioned, I was so rusty, you know, and I, I give myself really hard things to play, you know? So, you know, like I had a, you know, like in just full disclosure, like there've been times, you know, like I graduated from college 40 years ago, which is scary to think of. Yeah, man. And, and I was like a solid bass player. I was, yeah. I was practicing six, eight hours a day. And, mm-hmm. and then as I was building my career as a composer, I was doing that, yeah, <laughs> that right. length of time yeah, every of day. I was 10, 10 to 12 hours a day. I'd be like being a composer. Yep. So like, you know, the technique and stuff was like pretty damn rusty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I spent like, I wrote the crazy bass parts that I, that I ended up playing and then I practiced for like a month to just kind of, you know, rebuild some of my technique mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to where things felt a little more fluid. Yeah. And then on top of that, the one thing that you lose is on the tips of your fingers as a bass player, you get calluses. Yeah. Yep. Um, but because I I have a farm here, you know, <laughs> or, yeah. and I'm always sh- shoveling something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I still have my calluses. Nice. <laughs> I haven't been a couple other spots too, but yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. the fingertips, yeah. the fingertips, they're pretty calloused up. So, oh, could, that's great. Yeah. So yeah. So that wasn't a thing. I could play for fairly long periods of time without, like, yeah. you know, having blister issues or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. But but I had to spend a month just practicing every day and just mm, like mm-hmm. kind of working out what I was doing. And then even with that, I had to do like multiple takes 
yeah. of different sections of these pieces and just keep just practice that section until it started to feel comfortable and fluid. Mm -hmm. And then I did the Perchels Ninja thing and yeah. it in <laughs> Uh, you're a little behind the beat over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So just you know, so it is. It is an exercise in really brilliant editing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, <laughs> to there's get some, it to sound and feel right for yeah. sure. And there's there's yeah. a lot of great little bass spots, but particularly with the oud. So will you yes. talk about yeah. having oud on the yes. album? Because that's oud it's big so band. Because cool. you know, as soon as I heard it, I'm like, well, is that an oud? Yes, it is. Yes, it's an ood. You look in the crate. Yeah, yeah, that's an ood. What? Yep. yep. <laughs> Love it. Go so, on. Yeah. yeah. So that was the piece I dedicated to Arif Martin. So uh, Arif's family and everybody, they were from Turkey. And uh, when I think of Arif, um, as I was writing the piece, I just had this weird idea. Like Arif, you know, like when I think of him as a producer, he drew from everywhere. Every influence around the world was sure. sort of a thing. So he would... You know, there's um, there's a Chaka Khan song. It's an old classic jazz tune called "The Night in Tunisia." It's a Dizzy Gillespie tune. Yeah, and he's got some really fun stuff in that song's arrangement. That's drawing from all parts of the world and things like that. And then uh, there's a particular piece that he did. It was for uh, a guitar and big band uh, called "Sweet Fraternidad," and it's this great album. Um, and it was, uh, I think the W, I forget, a WDR big band or something like that. And, oh, uh, yeah, German uh, band. They're amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so it was this concert, live concert, and the album that was put out. Um, that definitely had this sort of really cool blend of this guitaristic kind of sound mm -hmm. with the big band. Mm -hmm. So it's just that idea of like putting something a little unusual yeah. in the big band setting was, yeah. was in my mind. And my friend, uh, Jimmy Maklis, uh is this amazing uh he plays amazing electric guitar um but he also plays oud and bazooki and he played on the argo film oh, okay uh so yeah. he's you know he's just this one he tours with different artists mm -hmm. uh from persia and yeah he's just this mediterranean bundle of joy he's <laughs> he's just amazing awesome. um yeah he's just the greatest person and great great musician and soloist Particularly the oud is like a very old treasured little oud of his. He has several, oh, okay. but this was okay. one that was, this is like his, his baby, uh, that, that he goes, I never take this to gigs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he was like, you know, so you record with that and it's just like a lovely sounding yeah. instrument and yeah. yeah. And then trying to get it to cut through a big band was a right. music producer issue of right. like, okay, how, how do I make that? <laughs> make that happen yeah um, you know and part of it is you don't have the horns playing all the time right. <laughs> <laughs> you 
you know, because they're you know, out competing. Because mm-hmm. you know, especially Wayne, Wayne is just like fills a room as soon as oh he plays. Oh my god! So, yeah, yeah. such a yeah. monster. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. So the the oud came from this sort of blend of a couple of different thoughts. You know, yeah. it's this idea of drawing from anywhere in the world, and I do that in my film and video game writing too. There's a, there's a you know phrase that I remember from one of my mentors, Mike Gibbs, who was a composer in residence at Berkeley, um, that the the song Essence is named after. He used to say, "Amateurs borrow, professionals steal," and, <laughs> and it was more like if it was more about ownership. It's like if you're going mm-hmm. to draw from something, yeah, you know, really learn it. You know, mm-hmm. so it's a lot of conversation with Jimmy about, you know, okay. What's a good key (laughs) for the, what's, what's, um, you know, I have this idea for the, uh, like I'd send him the the tune and and he would, um, uh, you know, it's like, is this playable? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I have this idea. He's like, Oh, this is mostly playable, but you know, like this, you know, like this register is a little trickier. You might change the octave or something like that. So, Mm -hmm. so collaborating with, you know, when you're writing for somebody specific, you do the same thing if you're writing a violin concerto. You oh, work yeah. with your violin soloists, yep. and you kind definitely. of definitely give them something challenging and fun to play. And yeah, um, but also yeah, playable. So it's similar. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be playable. And yeah. and what's funny about both Manic and uh, the Mardini effect is, and the Mardini effect is what Jimmy played on, um, mm-hmm. is uh, those are. You know, there's a grading scale for certain big band arranging and things like that. Sure. I think it's one to five, if I remember right. Okay. So those two, those two tunes are a seven. Uh, <laughs> you know, like because Wayne would say these are impossible to play if you're just a pickup big band oh, coming in yeah. to play mm-hmm. on a gig. Yeah, it's, it's got you know, like Wayne was saying, it's got to be a, like an army band that plays every day for six yeah. months. Yeah. There are a lot of bands for, like that though, right? Like Maria yeah. Schneider's band yeah. is like that. You can't yeah. just pick up a Schneider chart and rip it yeah. off. You know, it's just not like, yeah. That. And I think, yeah. yeah, some of the, some of the arrangers that I really love that I grew up on would be Don Ellis and Thad Jones. Oh yeah. And they wrote really hard stuff. Yeah. This is, you know, a, so, these are arrangements, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not yeah, just yeah. head solo head and we're out with 20 players. Yeah. It's like an yeah, intricate I, through composed situation with solo sections. <laughs> sure. Or like in the context of Don Ellis, he loved like Indian rhythms and odd time signatures. Oh and yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's all that kind of stuff. So you had to be able to like subdivide, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. and crazy tempos. And he is, his arrangements are kind of fantastical at times where mm-hmm. it's just like, it's, it's almost like about spectacle, right? <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's just, it's, but it's exciting. And yep. that was definitely a part of his style. And then mm-hmm. Tad Jones, he had very lyrical melodies on his lead trumpet parts, but the mm-hmm. density of his voicings was super dissonant and crunchy. Yeah. And to try and play in tune, if you're like in the middle of the trombone section with these, and you're like half steps away from each other, <laughs> um, is you know a thing you know mm-hmm. that you have to you have to kind of manage if, as a player and stuff like that. So like you know, I write sometimes really challenging things, but at mm-hmm. the same time. Um, 
that particular tune, Mardini Effect, um, the ending actually speeds up micro, you know, micro amounts because uh, I wanted it to kind of do this whirling dervish kind of, kind of yeah. build up at the end, and and it's only like like one BPM, like a, wow. a bar, you yeah. know, but it's just enough where you feel it's yep the tension rise mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I and this is another thing about me as a, a writer. Uh, when I'm writing something and I'm writing for people to play, I'm not like Steely Dan style. Everything has to be pristine and surgically perfect. Yeah. Um, and I love that music. Um, but I, I, it's, it, I, I want some soil in yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> I want, you know, it's, it, so like, for instance, if things get a little out of control at the end of that particular piece, mm-hmm. that's cool by me because yeah. that's part of the vibe. Right. You know, so. Uh, so there's those kinds of things. So with, with Jimmy and the playability of something, you know, there's some things where it just feels like it's almost out of control. Um, and, uh, and then the, you know, like player choices, like Jimmy will go, I'm not playing this entire scale. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. but I'm just going to grab the last bit. You yeah. Know, I'm going to finish it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to start it and finish it and I'll let yeah, the, yeah. the, cause the horns are covering everything. So, so you can make choices about when people come in and, and also in the orchestration of the horn writing, I was doing that same approach where like in the trumpet section, it's like a, a, this two octave, what we call an octatonic scale, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like, you know, it's this symmetrical scale of half steps and whole steps. And mm-hmm. it's a more unusual scale, uh, I think, for players to play. They don't play it as often as they play major or minor uh, modalities and things like that. So, so like within the trumpet section, if you look at the, the orchestration, you, you can see that, like, like I have the first trumpet started off sit out for a beat and then pick up the rest. And then I'm, I've tried mm-hmm. to balance out the orchestration where everybody's sort of like grabbing a breath and evenly distributing the idea mm-hmm. so that it, the, the sound of it sounds full, but yeah. it's not like trying to make everybody play that particular thing nonstop from beginning to end. That's totally that. Uh, that kind of way of writing is totally stolen from Stravinsky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. way he would break up stuff. Sure, you know, pass uh, it around. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, break up an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So there's a great thing in Firebird, I think it is, where in the trumpets, which you know very well, <laughs> there's a, there's a triplet figure, and the first trumpet is is playing something like. Dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it. So the the feel, the sound when you hear it is dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it. Yeah. So the first trumpet's doing the first two of the triplets. Going dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it, dig. And then the second trumpet is going pa 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 pa. So it just fits in there. Yeah. And so like it's this combination. So what you hear is the whole idea going dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it. But you hear an emphasis on the downbeats of everything. Because that's when two people are playing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So it's like breaking up the idea into two cooperative pieces. And you know, so it's similar in what I was describing here with the Mardini ending. It's just like everybody is playing the whole idea, but I break it up into 
it's little components so that it, it all gets together. And I love puzzles like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. No, I love the end of that track. Fun. It's great. Yeah. So Jimmy, yeah, Uden Big Band, why not? <laughs> <laughs> why not? Exactly. I yeah, mean, you got bass not? clarinet too, so Yes. I guess that's totally. not as uncommon. It's kind of uncommon though, you know. It is. But it's well, yeah, yeah, it's it's also because you know, like, you know, going to Berkeley College of Music, if you played a saxophone, uh part of their training was you should also play doubled instruments like flute yeah, and clarinet. You be able to double. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, you know, you're in a situation where you're being asked to do that live and, yep. and you got to be able to at least, you know, you have to be able to hold the instrument. Well, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, yeah. You're going to be a clarinet holder versus a yeah. player and, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, and then at least play the little part that you have. And I love that sort of, you know, switching color thing and Gil Evans and some of the stuff he did with Miles Davis would blend lots of cool color like yeah. that. Oboe. Yeah. He'd have oboe in a French in an arrangement. Yeah. French horn. Totally. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and hence in my my trombone section, there is a tuba on the bottom. Yeah. It's, it's it's three tenor trombones, bass trombone, and a tuba. Love it uh, because I love that sound. And mm -hmm. so with the woodwinds, yeah, there was definitely things like that. Um, and my brother Phil is playing the barry sax, the second tenor chair, and then okay. a bunch of the woodwinds, all the bass clarinet things. And then Andy also plays amazing flute, like I mentioned, but some clarinet. Mm -hmm. um, and then. Um, uh, so, you know, I was using between Andy and Phil, I got pretty good coverage of like those moments when I wanted to have woodwinds, mm -hmm. uh, playing stuff. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, that's, <laughs> that's part of the sound. And Tom Scott used to do that in some of his albums mm. where he would go to, he would go to like a woodwind background okay. and yeah. yeah, so there's a, there's a few of those tracks on here, um, where it's, it's mostly saxophones, but there's a few moments where I kind of go into the woodwind. Yeah. Uh, kind of thing, and that's just a lovely color. Okay, because um, intentionality starts yes. with acoustic bass. So someone yes. else played acoustic bass. And I, yes. yeah. I, I'm so curious why you never made that jump. Or did okay. you try? Or what? why did you decide, well, I'm just going to stay on electric bass? Because, was yeah. it because you loved fusion so much and acoustic just isn't a thing? Or, or what, what was that about? So um, in college... There were plenty of bass players that played both acoustic and electric bass. Okay. And because I was also a writer, mm -hmm. I was practicing six, eight hour days on electric bass. And I, and it, the reason is because out of respect, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I could commit the time. Oh, sure. Yeah. To, to pick up acoustic bass. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I focused on writing and I focused on playing electric and, and, you know, that was, 
part of it. My buddy Dean Taba is the one playing the acoustic bass. And so Dean is, um, he's both an amazing acoustic player and electric player. Okay. And, um, and he's, um, he is what you get when you have somebody that's passionate about the bass and practices all those things every day, <laughs> you know, versus me being somebody who's passionate about writing mm -hmm. and does that most of the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, you know, so yeah, you leave it to the professionals for that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. It kind of came from that. It's out of respect for the instrument and yep. how cool the upright bass is. Um, I, I just felt like it wasn't something I could uh, set aside enough time yeah. to do well. Mm -hmm. And so I just focused on things that, that I could do. And then, you know, in the context here, it's just like half of the tunes are upright bass and half are electric mm -hmm. bass. So mm -hmm. uh, originally I was just going to have Dean do everything. And oh, you know, oh, I'm but glad you I, played, though, aren't you? Yeah, I'm glad I played yeah, too. It was yeah. it was painful, but yeah. it was you know. <laughs> but it sounds yeah, so it, uh, good. You know, you can't yeah. hear any of that, right? It just sounds great. Yeah. It sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dean would have killed it on electric bass too. He's done mm -hmm. some great work for me in, in the past. But he, um, uh, you know, I just thought it'd be fun to just go for it and play the electric yep. bass stuff myself and. Um, because like I mentioned earlier, uh, yeah, there wasn't necessarily a deadline imposed. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, and we can get into this a little more, just this idea of managing COVID and trying to figure out the remote recording yeah. kind of thing. But on the bass thing, um, kind of closed that idea for bass stuff. Um, you know, Dean just kills it on the upright and mm -hmm. intentionality specifically, you know, this is me and my impish sense of humor. Sometimes <laughs> I'm like, you know, cause normally in a, a traditional jazz setting, you play the head, you solo, mm -hmm. but usually the last people to play solos in the solo section are the bass player and the drummer. Right. Yeah, and well, then yeah. you play that, you play the head again and end the song. Yeah. Right. So I was just like, I had this bug in my head going, I'm starting with a bass solo. Yes, <laughs> good. I'm glad you did. And then on top of that, what I wanted, the only thing I wanted that I, that I told Dean about was I wanted him to know what the tempo was because the tempo does not change, but I wanted him to start off where you weren't sure as the listener, you know, it almost sounds like it's sort of open and he's just sort of improvising without a tempo, but as everybody kind of sneaks in, in the opening of the, the arrangement that there is a tempo that's been there the whole time. <laughs> You know, and and so, you know, so it's sort of playing with time a little bit in that opening section where it's kind of like, you know, what's going on? Is this like a cadenza or whatever? Yeah. And then the next thing you know, you hear, you know, you know, the different instruments in the rhythm section kick in and all of a sudden, you know, oh, 
and you may not even realize that as an audience that it's been in tempo the whole time. Yeah. But it's just yeah. sort of conceptually what I wanted to mm-hmm. try and begin the tune with. And I also like the idea of, you know, like I've heard a lot of really great Keith Jarrett stuff, especially oh, his standards kind of stuff with his trio where mm-hmm. he doesn't necessarily start with the melody. Right. Sometimes they'll, they'll start with improvisation. The melody will be somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. or, yep. or along the way or near the end. So, you know, I, I love the idea as an arranging idea of like, it doesn't always have to start with the head. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, it's like, no, let's start with Dean. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. I love you know, it. And then we get into an established, you know, melody or, or we call it head. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I suppose it's in the head and tails category of things, but uh, <laughs> but so, we don't call it a tail yeah. either in jazz. No, There's no tail. Yeah, no, it's no, just the head. No. And then when you play yeah. it again at the end, you're playing the head again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to the going to the ending. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. You know. The the. So yeah. Yeah, like the five years I spent, almost five years I spent in mm. jazz radio. You learn real quick that no one wants the bass solos and no one wants the drum solos, which is such a tragedy because it immediately eliminates just hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands and thousands of great tunes that people need to hear. And, and, you know, but people just, it's, it's hard in the car. I get, I get it, but still it was a frustrating constraint to be like, I can't play this eight minute track because there's a 45 second drum solo in it. Like, right. And you could, but you yeah. just without without a doubt would hear something about it from someone. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's crazy. So I'm yeah. glad you put yeah. it in there. That's that's their loss. Um, <laughs> I, no, I know no. it is. It's it's like <laughs> such a tragedy. Yeah. 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 There's yeah, like sometimes my shrink says things like, "That's not about you. That's about them." It <laughs> is. Yeah, big time. <laughs> big time. Like no drum solos, really. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Have you heard Peter play? Oh man, I could just go on <laughs> yeah. and on about yeah. phone calls I got about the most ridiculous things, but yeah. yeah. But yeah. yeah, that's just yeah. how people are. Yeah. It's just yeah. like the comments section in a newspaper article or something. That's, you know. Oh yeah. It's just yeah. It Trolls have been here forever. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And they so, troll your local radio host for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just like. Yeah. You should just do a show of nothing but drum solos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like this is the drum hour. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Um, you know, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did love all the Fender roads in there is really funny. Mm. You hear it, you know, right off the bat in manic maniac. Wait, manic. Wait, maniac. Manic. Manic. I wrote yeah. maniac in here. Any, Cause it's one of my yeah. favorites is manic. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, I have several favorites, but um, but I loved the sax soli section in that track too. Um, right, it was really fun because that's, I mean, that's another mainstay in a big band, right? Is can you write oh, a good totally. can you write a good sax soli section? And and uh, I just loved it. Thought it was great. more than that but but yeah that's right that's yeah that's um let's see where is it i think it's there 
I didn't write yep. down the timestamp. Usually I do. It doesn't matter. I can do you one better. Um, you going to show it to me? Yes, I am. Oh God, that's very <laughs> exciting. Good. All right. I just need to just zoom in where it's big enough here. Um, yeah, so this is the beginning of the sax solo section. Yeah. You know, it up. And then this counter is back and forth between the bass and the barrier doubling this idea. It's a very that. nutty line, tricky to play. Um, you know, where it's just back and forth, the conversation between what's going on in the bass. And then there's also like a Moog synthesizer doubling this too. Oh god. That's like okay. it's it's this very rattly subwoofery <laughs> frequency moog sound that's just fat as all get out Love and it. so yeah so it's just like and this is a concert pitch so it's just nothing but ledger lines um yeah. but uh uh oh. let's see so um oh, it so is do that and then that yeah i mean if i did it transpose that would be like that oh, okay um, okay yeah the bellius is our friend uh, oh right and of right. course you don't put in a key signature because it's studio musicians and they don't yeah, I you don't really, really do a lot that. of yeah. Yeah, if I stay in a key, I'll put a key signature. But if I'm okay, um, you know, if I'm just going for a typical thing, yeah, um, you know, and then you know, all the phrasing and stuff like that, you know, kind of yeah. stuff. Um, <laughs> and then you know, trumpets come in. Yeah. And this is fast. This is like yeah. 300 beats a minute fast. So yeah, yeah. Pe they Peter sound like sixteenths, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter was killing it on the on the, on the up tempo. It's like 300 beats a minute is hard. 200 beats a minute is hard for a lot of drummers for swing. Yeah, yeah but it was like close to 300. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking we should touch briefly on just, you know, like, how do you put a remote recorded album? Yes, <laughs> that was my next, that was my next thing. Cause I mean, cause this, I mean, yeah, there's so many different things. Now, were some of those musicians already pretty well set up at home? Like yes. did Wayne already have a pretty dope recording mm -hmm. gig, I'm sure at, in his place. Yes. And, um, yeah. but, but that's not, it's, it's not just having that, right. It's still, you have to blend all these people who everyone's on a different yeah. microphone and everyone's in a different space mm -hmm. with different yes. soundproofing and different yeah. acoustic treatments. Totally. And like, so yeah. So talk about it. It just sounds like an absolute yeah. nightmare to me. <laughs> well, you know, it ended up not being too much of a nightmare. Okay. Uh, it, there was some challenges. Like, uh, like one of the things is, yeah, uh, every, everyone has a different microphone, but usually everybody that has a home studio or home recording setup, like Wayne has his own, he built a studio at his house mm -hmm. and he's had it for years. Yeah. So, you know, it's just an opportunity. You can work in your pajamas, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you can, you can kind of like, yeah, you know, you could take on more work. You can maybe doing two sessions in a day for somebody like him, but then mm -hmm. you get home at night and, and you might have, you know, an hour or so before you, you know, go to sleep or something where you're like, Hey, I could kind of do this whole this yeah. side project and stuff like that. So, yeah. um, um, so a lot of my friends have done remote recording 
kinds of things pre-COVID. And so they had already had experience. So Wayne was one of those. Alex had to learn kind of when COVID hit, he's like, oh, dang, I got to like figure out, okay. like, I got to figure out this thing, you know, because for performing musicians, there was no live performing anymore. So right. all those yep. jazz buddies of mine were like out of work. Yeah. Um, so the idea of like, you know, if you did have a remote recording session set up, then that was, um, that was definitely optimal for you to be able to keep me living. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter had always had his studio. Um, oh, okay. So, so there was, there was quite a yeah. few musicians that, that could, uh, Jimmy had, uh, uh, his home recording set up too. Um, and then my friend, Kenny Lassane, who plays all the, the, oh, the guitar uh, stuff. most of the electric guitar stuff. Yeah. So Ken, Kenny is always, yeah, he's, he's awesome. So he's had a remote recording thing going on. Uh, and Kenny is like a pedal guy. Yeah. Uh, well, he did all I mean, that he, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that, but you know, there's also like, so Kenny is a, you know, he's, he's, he's like an encyclopedia of musical style, okay. rock, soul, yeah. jazz. And he can just do um, it all. Yeah. yeah. And he's also a really good soloist, but like as a, as a rhythm player, he's just this big encyclopedia. And so he's got like a wall of pedal effects, like somewhere between, I think three to 500 <laughs> pedals. And he, and That's there's like a, a lot it, of pedals, man. <laughs> yeah. And they all do different things. And yeah, they all, yeah. So he's, he is an orchestrator okay. is what he is <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. because it's about texture and color mm-hmm. and, and, uh, as well as things like tone. And then he's got his favorite amplifiers and he's got yeah. many, many guitars that he uses and they all sound different. And it's just this blend of different kinds of colors. And so, mm-hmm. and he always does really surprising stuff. So there's stuff that he does where I'm like, what the heck is that? I, you know, it's like, it doesn't even sound like it's a guitar right. you know, at times. And, uh, so I always, I always love seeing what he comes up with mm-hmm. as far as the kind of colors he wants to paint with. Um, so, and even you know, like the, that, the opening entrance of the electric guitar is it's mostly Kenny, but there's some things that I did in Pro Tools that, um, I added to it. So he, it's, you know, like w- what he was using is sort of what I call a clean sound, mm-hmm. but there was a little 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 distorted edge to the attack mm-hmm. you know and it's just mm-hmm. all these little subtle things he was doing i think he had some delays and things on that a little reverb and then i added there's this plugin that simulates um it's called real adt and it, it simulates there's a very speed knob on old analog tape decks okay and if you listen to like some old beatles albums like i am the walrus and you know some of those kinds of songs you know there's some wobbly vocal kinds of sounds sure and that's that's basically they were running the vocal through a tape deck and somebody was tweaking the variable speed knob <laughs> you know in different directions and it sort of like fractionally speeds and slows up yeah how fast the tape is going over the heads um and that particular plugin allows it's basically it's two it's the equivalent of two analog tape decks with variable speed knobs and it's spatialized yeah so it's like you end up with four different sound sources coming back at you in stereo so you can i wanted something that was kind of a little swimmy um okay. to add to what kenny was doing so was, you know most of it's kenny 
coming up with his own sounds, but there were a few things that I would add and Kenny's like, that sounds really cool. Let's, yeah. Yeah. you know, what are you using and stuff like that. So, yeah. So some of that is that. You know, continuing on the remote recording kind of thing, yep. you know, like part of it is, you know, the people that did have experience doing it um, were helping the other people sure. who didn't, you know, like, like for, you know, I mentioned Alex was, it was early stages for him to kind of learn how to remote record himself. And Wayne was totally helping him out, you know, and, and it's like, you need to call this person, they'll set you up and, yeah. you, know, you know, get this microphone, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, so, you know, and then, you know, like, and Alex is now, he's a pro at it. And the other thing about the remote recording thing is uh, the space that you record in, right? So yeah. if you don't tr acoustically treat your space, yep. you can hear little reflections of sound coming off of walls and things like that. And mm -hmm. it can be an issue. But if you got a close mic, so if I'm going to do this, <laughs> if you got a close mic, you yeah. can capture what's directly in front of it really easily. Yeah. And, um, uh, so if you're close miking everybody, then for the most part, if the micro with the right microphone, you're not necessarily going to get things bouncing off walls. Uh, so it becomes a little easier to control. Mm -hmm. And then on the mix side, I have to put a space in there for everybody to play in, which is part of the, the idea of like, how do you get everybody who's remote recording to sound like they're in a single space and, yeah. you know, like going back to what I mentioned about Capitol records and the EMT plates in the basement. So I wanted in the in the way i set up my pro tools session the setup was uh, i'm using like the equivalent of a neve console channel strip plug on okay, everything cool. so that it col colors everything a particular way and a neve is a um, mixing board let's just yes, clarify yes, for, for those folks who for, don't know yeah, what a neve is it's a yeah, big yeah, giant it's, board yeah. with all the dials and the faders yeah. and yeah yeah if you've ever seen old school pictures of, of studios it's like a yeah. lot of like a lot of knobs and yeah. sliders and things like that in the Neve console. For those that want to look it up on Google, it's N-E-V-E. Yep. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so so it was a Neve console channel strips that I was using to get a particular color because every every mixing console sounds different. Mm -hmm. uh, an SSL sounds different from a Neve, and um, a Harrison sounds different from the other two. So uh, so that was part of it. Um, and then I used DMT plates which are like a reverb uh, acoustic space simulator. That's basically, it's this big metal plate and it's a microphone and then a speaker <laughs> in a basement somewhere <laughs> and a lot of cement. And, um, <laughs> and basically you run whatever you want to send. Like you could take your trumpet sound you run it out of the speaker in the room with the EMT plate. It plays out the speaker and the microphone picks it up on the other side of the plate and it sort of vibrates along. Uh, this metal plate huh. and that that creates this sense of like a, a a long room sound and those frank sinatra albums and that yeah. can call the, the the room sound is combination of the room at Capitol records plus the plate oh, reverb kind of a component okay. so like i would add spatial kinds of things yeah uh, to all the tracks to kind of blend things together um, including a few mixing tricks that you know like nick turned me on to this one mixing trick which i forgot about which is like kind of drawing from Beatles record days, okay. which is 
uh, the easiest way to describe it for pretty much anybody if you're not audio nerdy like me is uh, in my mix, and I forget, is this to your left as you're viewing me? Yes. Okay, so <laughs> I got to reverse what I'm doing. We'll see, but yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll see. Okay, I'll do two ver. I'll do two versions. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, right. So on the on one side, I've got like the saxophone sort of spread out. Like if you're thinking left to right and how you're hearing in your headphones mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or in the speaker, um, like more a little left of center to the the far left is like alto. Alto one, two, tenor one, two, and Barry. Okay. Yeah, so Barry is furthest away. And then the opposite side is trombone, one, two, three, four, tuba. And so that kind of makes the horn sound kind of wide. Mm-hmm. And then trumpets are sort of overlaid center left to center right. Oh, cool. Uh, okay. Between them. And and it, it would be like if I had them in a room, they would be in a, a C shape. In the yeah, room. right. Yeah, right. With trumpets in the and, middle and then the... Yeah, trumpets yeah. in the middle, mm-hmm. saxes on one side, trombones on the other. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so one of the tricks that, that we were doing was we were taking a mono, not stereo reverb, and I would put it on the opposite side. Of, so the saxes would feed into a mono reverb on the right side. Oh, interesting. The would feed into a mono reverb on the left. And what I'm doing is I'm simulating what happens when you have people in a space. The saxophones might be on the left side of the room, the trombones on the right side of the room, but the sound of the sax is going to bleed over into little microphones picking up the trombones yeah. and vice versa. So I'm creating that and simulating that, that, that extra sound that's getting uh, added into whatever's close to the microphone. Cool. Uh, and so you just add these little subtle things and all of a sudden it sounds like everybody's together yeah. in the same space. So some of it's adding the one big room reverb mm-hmm. and some of it is doing these little monoverbs that are directional to kind of fill in yeah. a little glue. Right, right. <laughs> you know? And, you know, so some of it is that kind of production stuff. editing side of doing an album like this with remote recording is not everybody interprets what's on the page exactly the same. So yeah. if I have a sports, a sports ondo is a technique where you play it really loud, get really quiet, very fast. And then you, you mm-hmm. build up your volume to the end of however long the note is supposed to be held. So if it's holding it for four beats, then it's just like kind of a thing. Yeah. But some people drop down in volume. And then they wait till the very end to get sure, back up. Yeah. And some some start sooner, mm-hmm. you know. So so in order to get everybody to sound, I didn't want everybody to sound perfect. But you know, sometimes I would like some people would go long. <laughs> so it's like yeah. play it for four beats and they'd go for five. You yeah. know, I'm just kind of kind of hang over yep. a little bit at the end. So that was like this one the odd odd person out, just mm-hmm. like kind of hanging on mm-hmm. a little too long. Um, and there's a there's a rule in big band is that the lead trumpet player is always the last always. <laughs> to finish hang the on. note. Just got to hang on just a little bit longer. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's because everyone's following following the leader. Yeah. But also, it, it is something about 
the style, I think that's, that's also part of that. Oh yeah. yeah. It's the style and the attitude. It's the, um, flamboyance of the lead, you know, in a way it's just like such a, yeah, it's a, yeah. And that's, that's part of the fun of fun of those kinds of things, but also, so some of it was editing things, Yeah, you know, you're remote recording everybody. Um, and some people were like, you know, either we were getting our friends to help them as figuring out how to remote record Mm -hmm. or figure out what's a good microphone to use and, and, or I'd be on the phone with them. Um, you know, or like in, in Kenny's case, he was getting used to a new piece of software at the time. So, so I was, I was in zoom calls with Kenny just kind of saying, Oh yeah, no, you know, click on that drop down menu over there, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And he's like, Oh, that's where it is. You know? So, you know, so I was kind of helping him get acclimated with navigating through a particular piece of software. And then pretty much I did that in like an hour. And then by the next day he was like, ah, okay. Everything makes sense now. Everything's cool. You know? And, uh, yeah, so, you know, so, so some, once we got the technical aspects of, you know, all of that, um, then, uh, it was just getting all that data. Mm -hmm. So the editing Mm -hmm. with the horns was making sure that everything felt like, and this is a thing in remote recording compared to, um, uh, when you're in a room, um, and this applies to the rhythm section and the horn players, when you're in the room, people get visual cues off of each other there's there's you're listening you might be listening to a click track so you know where what beat you're on but there's also visual cues especially for things like entrances and cutoffs like when the note ends mm-hmm. you know like if you if your lead trumpet player is going bah, ah, yeah. right they sometimes will move their hand a little bit <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> you know so the horn is kind of like bah, it's almost yeah. dipping with the note so you yep. can kind of visually even if it's in your periphery as a player, mm-hmm. you kind of see how they're phrasing something and you can hear how they're phrasing. Yeah. And you, it, yeah. It's like when you watch a string quartet, they're always looking at each other. Yep. Always um, moving together. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, there's visual cues that happen that didn't exist because right. everyone's remote recording mm-hmm. kind of in a vacuum, so to speak. And so, so, you know, my job on the production side and the, the editing of the audio was I'm going to be everybody's eyes you know, mm-hmm. in that situation. And I'm just imagining if I'm those f- horn players in the room in the cutoffs, like, w- you know, like how are they listening and looking at each other? Yeah. Cause they can hear, they can hear maybe not everybody playing together cause they were stair stepping, mm-hmm. you know, like adding, it's an additive process of, you know, you put your lead trumpet and then you add your second, third and fourth trumpet. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, like if, if it's it might be lead and third trumpet together <laughs> and, then, and then, and then the second trumpet, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, comes in a little later. So it's not, not quite in a particular order. Um, and, uh, so like Andy Suzuki, when he was doing this, the lead alto, what he would do is he would actually play, he played four parts. He'd play oh. lead alto, second alto, first tenor, um, and second tenor and he was in on the album. He's first tenor chair and the, and the first alto chair. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would do all four parts because like it helped him figure out when he played the first tenor part, where he needed to be in sure. the blend of a section. Sure. And then we would replace the second alto part with my friend, Billy Martin and the, and the second tenor oh, yeah. with my brother, Phil, and then Phil would put the berry on the bottom. Okay. Um, but some, you know, for some of the players that was just easier to do. Yeah. Um, you know, to kind of, oh, let me just do all the parts and, and yep. just kind of figure out like what's going on. Um, so that's an interesting thing with remote recording. Uh, the other part of, um, 
the remote recording on the rhythm section is the feel, the groove of it mm -hmm. is that that visual interaction is really critical. So as amazing as everybody was playing, um, myself was the exception because I edited the hell out of my bass parts because <laughs> I'm rusty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, like even when I'm editing my own thing, you know, it was about like, what did I play and what parts of the feel of what I did, like work really well with what Peter was doing on the drums. Mm -hmm. And then, um, if I needed to nudge something, what felt more like it was in the pocket because we were looking at each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's this weird thing of me imagining the psychology of what's happening in this mm -hmm. space with people and trying to simulate that um, in the editing process is like part of that remote recording thing. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the rest is just like mix, you know, just making sure that everything that, what you want the listener to focus on in a given part of the tune. Like if there's a solo, you want them to hear the soloist well. Yeah. If you want to, yeah, if you want the, you know, when the horns are not <clears throat> playing, you want the rhythm section. Like I wanted the rhythm section to sound more intimate, mm -hmm. like an ECM album kind of oh, like yeah. you hear all, you hear all the elements really clearly yeah. versus a, a typical, you know, like if you listen to an old Count Basie album, you barely hear the guitar. Yeah. It's just, it's <laughs> yeah. Freddie Ring poor going, zunt, 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 poor Freddie on his little quarter note chords, <laughs> you know, which is great, you know, but it's just yeah. like in the mix, you know, it's there and you barely, you know, like Count Basie was a pianist, but like in the context of the big band, you know, like mm -hmm. the piano, how loud it was, was, you know, the rhythm section sort of there yeah. to drive things, but it's not really super loud. And I mm -hmm. wanted something that was a little more, contemporary rhythm section sound and then when the horns would kick in and everything was big it's you know we would we would make that sound good too so mm -hmm. it's trying to find a balance between those two components and so uh the mixing was me and frank wolf who's a just a legendary mixer in los angeles he's okay. worked with randy newman so if you you know monsters incorporated and okay you know and uh, uh you know like pretty much any Randy Newman score and quite a few, I think Randy Newman albums, Frank was the mixing engineer. Cool. Um, and he's, he's like extended family with me. So, uh, so he was like making the drums, you know, like it's a thing. I'm a good mixer for a composer, but Frank has spent his whole life being a mixing engineer. Sure, and yeah. it's, it's like Dean being the upright bass player. Yeah, same yeah, idea. Yeah. You know? So, uh, and I trust Frank and then Frank adds his own secret sauce, you know, like, so I can make my drums sound pretty good, but like Frank puts his fingers on the knobs and does a couple of tweaks and all of a sudden it goes from like sounding good to yeah. sounding insanely amazing, <laughs> you know, and he, he just nudged a little thing. Sure. Yeah. You know, just like, you know, just a like, little God, digital knob. Yeah. 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 So, so for me, it's been a joy to kind of spend mm -hmm. the last couple of years studying Frank, so yeah, to speak, yeah. and looking at what he did mm -hmm. to, uh, to really like, uh, you know, like take things up a notch. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then he was super busy because he was doing like a ton of movies and stuff like that. So he would just like get a few hours at a time to kind mm -hmm. of like do that. The schedules was another part of this remote recording issue, yeah. trying, to, trying to get everything together. So it took, it took several years just to get the tracking done. Yep. And then, um, and then, you know, mixing and, uh, and then that was about like, sometimes that was a schedule thing. I'd have to wait six months because Frank was doing like some, yep. some like insane, like amount of work on a movie or something sure, like that. So, yeah. uh, 
so yeah, but it's finally done. It's, it's done. mastered. Yeah. Uh, Nick did the mastering. He did an awesome job. Oh, cool. Uh, so yeah, he's done a lot of music production himself and uh, mixing, mastering. So, mm -hmm. uh, so it's just you know what the remote thing is really about using your imagination of like yeah you know, what the goal being everybody should feel like it's in there in a space together and what are those psychological elements of eye contact how do i simulate eye contact through just audio yeah. you know and uh uh you know just trying to trying to like decipher that so it's a really interesting kind of learning process and i'm really yeah. i'm proud of the work and uh oh it's so good it is a joyful like you mentioned earlier it is mm -hmm. a joyful yeah um uh, it was a joyful experience to to make it um, and and hear what everybody would bring to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's yeah, I love it's, it. It's a plus thing, and I like that we've had some time to talk about it. A oh, little it's bit. been so great. Yeah. Where do people yeah. find it? How do people listen to it? Um, so, like right now, uh, I'll need to set this up, <laughs> but um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give um the the link that i gave you that's the streaming version yeah. of it mm -hmm. um you could utilize that and uh, like i can share that or i can you can yeah you, okay, you can okay, share okay, that okay, it's okay. basically it's just a, it's not a downloadable version of it but oh, it's perfect. a streamed version okay. of yeah. of okay. the album and then i'm going to add a link to uh the gofundme site yeah. so if somebody wants to get a copy it's we're in pre-release mode right now yeah. as i'm trying to figure out you know like i've got to coordinate things like getting record reviews and like you know promoting to radio yeah uh whatever, yeah. whatever or spotify or whatever you know so i gotta yeah. get that and it'll be a digital release uh to begin with yeah so use that link and uh and then you can check it out and then there'll be a link to the gofundme site if you want to uh if you want to buy it and Good. uh yeah, and it's yeah, it's just good, good to you know feel some sense of completion. Even though yeah. I have like a big list of things like of this course. promoting the album thing, yeah. um, a lot of a lot of people have been requesting, hey, when you get a vinyl version together, yeah, you know, that'd be awesome. Yeah, which would be cool. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it's like, and then I was like, I didn't do any artwork for vinyl. I did artwork for CD booklet kind oh, of a thing, yeah, and I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, so I spent like last week. <laughs> you know, just, you know, making sure that that was looking good. Yep. And so like, I've got that stuff kind of ready for manufacturing oh, and cool. it's just more about, I'll do the digital release first and then I'll like figure out when I'm going to drop, sure. drop vinyl. The vinyl thing was like, here's the thing. Uh, uh, I've been so used to what a CD length would be. Oh, and like 72 minutes or whatever. 70. Yeah. 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 So, and this is, this is eight. I thought eight pieces was a good balance about an hour's worth of music. Yeah. But on a vinyl record, you can only get about 22 minutes oh, a side. Right. That's right. Oh. So in theory, I have three sides <laughs> <laughs> and a blank <laughs> if I try and cram it onto oh, two no. records. Oh, um, no. So I, it's, it's, it sounds like it's a nightmare. It's not. It's just, it's just going to be a double it's a album. It's a logistical like, issue. Yeah. 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 It's just two, two songs per side on two LPs. Two records, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And that, you know, because some of the songs like Manic and uh, the Mardini Effect are both nine minutes yep, long. Yep. So, 
So the radio station producer that was not liking drum solos would not like those links. They don't want a nine-minute song. <laughs> yeah, especially like yeah. where I used to work, at, you know, yeah. in the mornings and the afternoons. They do yeah. traffic every 10 minutes. So you, the most yeah. I could yeah. get away with, if I pushed it I, and I yeah. did it right, I could do an eight-and-a-half-minute track. That was about right. that was about max. But a nine-minute, yeah, so, unless I told yeah. traffic specifically, we're going late to you, which people don't like. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the people in that. Yeah. And if you're doing John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, it's just yeah. not going to happen. No, it's not. There were other shifts that definitely we could play much longer tracks, yeah. but not drive time. Yeah. And that's when you have yeah. most of your listeners. So it's like, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. logistics or the practical logistics of yeah. like, you know, like I think a lot of people, it's fun to see under the hood sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. You know, most people that are just listening to radio station it doesn't occur to them. Oh my God! You know, like, you know, like yeah. these traffic. Yeah, the traffic announcements are helpful because I'm going to work or whatever. But <laughs> like, just the idea of like there's limitations on what you play mm-hmm. and how you have to time things yeah. in between the, those time things. Is king. Because, it's all about the yeah. clock. It's all about yeah. the clock. Every second that counts. And, that no dead air. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or or the the public radio pregnant yeah. pause is okay, but that's you know. Yes. Yeah, not, not the, too much more than With the that. whispery voice, yeah. yes. <laughs> You're listening to NPR. NPR. This is NPR. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, what else do you got going on yeah. these days, Lenny? I mean, you do, oh, you do work yeah. with San Francisco Conservatory. Yes. Um, what else is on your plate? Yes. Well, yeah, I'm an adjunct professor at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and I teach like a couple of days a week there, and then I'm doing my professional composing work all the rest of the time. Um, and the adjunct thing is just, it's a contribution back, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of helping the next generation figure out that they're not alone, mm-hmm. that some of us have been through this yeah. path before yeah. and hopefully we can, you know, this is mentorship once again, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just kind of sharing that. Um, I've been working on outcast two for a couple of years awesome. now. Um, and that's, that's still in development, but they're getting, they're getting close. Uh, they haven't announced when they're going to release the game yet. Mm-hmm. We will have another conversation about that Good. at some point, Good. um, which is, which is cool. Um, but that, that was, you know, that was two and a quarter hours of music and wow. orchestra, choir, uh, soloists. Wow. Um, I have soloists from all over the world, cool. you know? So now was that as a result of COVID too? Do you think that you had soloists all over the world? Okay, I had to remote record an orchestra. Okay, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. (laughs) But not like a violin at a time. But like we had we had to do smaller sections. Everyone was masked. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's certain countries that had it way more together than we had here in the United States. Yeah. You know, our, our response was pathetic and compared to like a country like New Zealand oh, where there yeah. was like, yeah, we got a handle. And then, yeah. you know, quite a few of the European countries, yeah. you know, they, they had their cases and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but they were able to kind of pretty much everybody was like, no, like, I think it was an example. Germany was just mm-hmm. like, we'll pay you to stay home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, because, you know we need this to happen. And then yeah. the Germans were just like, okay, yeah, you know, yeah, like everyone stayed it. home and yeah. stayed, stayed healthy. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So for that project, it was definitely, you know, like COVID issues of, uh, you know, just managing everybody's health mm-hmm. and, um, and being able to get stuff done. So some of that is just trying to figure out scheduling. Yeah. Um, and, and when is it doable? And then, you know, it was worrisome because, you're juggling a lot of balls 
you know, and yeah. fairly large, fairly large budget, you know, mm-hmm. trying to like go, okay, can I get all everything recorded with the orchestra? Yeah. You know, cause the, the remote people, they can record in their home studios. So mm-hmm. that's, that's one thing, but you know, like, you know, when you're trying to get a, you know, an entire string section, yeah. like 50 strings together or something like that. Um, you know, you got to make sure you can get them before like, a, yeah. you know, it gets to the winter and the case camp goes up. Mm-hmm. So it's like crazy, crazy stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, um, there was some of that. And then, um, and that makes the editing it of all affects what you do and the time you have to schedule for other things. So like mm-hmm. you have to, you have to edit a little more right? when you're not recording everybody at the same time. Yeah. It's a tremendous yeah. amount of extra work, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, and then on top of that, it even changed how I orchestrated some things. Oh, you know, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just because everyone's, you know, like the woodwinds were recorded separately from the brass. And then I had like mm-hmm. high strings, low strings and wire and stuff. Yeah. Like so it was yeah. like, yeah. So it was just like, you know, by the time I got to the woodwinds, it was just like, oh man, I didn't, I didn't really fill in some of those holes there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so is so, there yeah. a release so, date yeah. for Outcast 2 yet? Has not been okay. announced yet. Okay. And so therefore that's all I can say. Okay. Yeah, sure. That's the one <laughs> uh, part of the NDA we've just bumped up against. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, uh, but the thing is, it's really interesting on that. It was a sort of a side thing is that the publisher publisher has been really cool about allowing us to say certain things, even with the NDA. So oh, cool. usually with, usually in video games with the NDA, you can't say what game you're working right. on. Yeah. Any of that. And they put on the website for the game my name <laughs> when they first announced the game. Nice. Well, it's one of the and best parts of the first one. Thanks. And uh, yeah. And, 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 but you know, like I reached out to them and said, so when can we talk about like, when can my people, my crew and all mm-hmm. that, when can we say that we worked on it? And they're like, mm-hmm. now it's okay. Awesome. You know? And then, you know, they've allowed us to release through like YouTube and things like that, little snippets of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, they were really supportive. We did the game developer conference recently. And oh, cool. I was doing a speaking thing with the lead audio uh, programmer mm-hmm. uh, for Outcast too, and we were talking. It was it's not called a post mortem because the game's not even out yet, right? Right. But it was a it was pre mortem or something. <laughs> uh, I don't know uh, yeah. what do you call it. But you know, we were able to talk about like the music design and the audio design and mm-hmm. and, and some of the challenges and things in. Um, a few things about remote recording, you know, with something like that, but we could kind of put a little bit of a uh, demonstration of uh, under the hood types of things of yeah. the things that we're trying to do. And we're trying to do some fairly innovative things that I haven't seen too many people do in video game audio. So cool. talk about that and share that with the community, Nice, uh, which is really unusual that a publisher was like, yeah, you know, right. and I mean, there's this thing with NDAs of a lot of things. It's about control. Yeah. Um, but um, what usually gets lost in the equation is a lot of times they're like, we want marketing to determine uh, how we're going to put the message out and mm-hmm. how we want to do things. And I totally understand and respect that. Yeah. But I have people that follow me. I have a fan base. Yep. And everybody that works 
on these projects has their own fans and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. And we can sell more product <laughs> yeah. If, yeah. If, if, if you let us collaborate and go, yeah, you know, just let me know when you're going to say something so <laughs> I can say something, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, so in, in, in the case of, uh, THQ Nordic, uh, which was the publisher on Akos too, uh, they've been super kind and super, super supportive of all that, which is really cool. And I think, it, I think it's, I think it's been kind of interesting, you know, and, uh, we'll see, you know, when they, when they do the final announcement of, Hey, it's coming out in this date and, yep. and all that. But, you know, I can, I can say that it's been a joy oh, uh, good. To, to, to revisit, yeah. you know, yeah. my very first video game score I know. And, and, and play in that little sandbox and, yeah. uh, um, and try and do even more innovative things. Which wow. Is, yeah. Amazing. It's, it's what I, you know, I, I've always operated from this, kind of principle of not, I don't want to be bored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I yeah. want to do projects that are really interesting. I want to work with great people. Yep. And, uh, and you know, in the context of the big band project, uh, that was just something I've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And there'll probably be some more stuff like that, more personal projects as you know, we move forward. Good. Yeah. Cause yeah. you know, that's, that's also me expressing myself as yeah. completely as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. do that through the media work, but I also just do it kind of every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, Lenny, all right. I just yes. loved the album. I loved getting caught up with you, and I, yeah. I'm excited that that we have you know many more reasons to talk in the future. <laughs> it's good, of course. Yeah, yeah. I'm so grateful for you. Oh, thanks. I mean, do you have any final mm-hmm. thoughts about the album or? Uh, yeah, the only the only thing I would add, and this is sort of one of the things about mentorship, is you know, like one of the things I'm doing as a supplemental thing on it is um, I've asked everybody who played on the album, including the people I dedicated songs to, mm-hmm. to supply me with like one or two paragraphs on who were their mentors. Oh, cool! Yeah. So it's so that'll be up on a website. Okay. You know where you get to see like you yeah. know. Who are Peter Erskine's mentors? Who were yeah. uh, Michael Gibbs' mentors? So, you know, and Michael Gibbs was a composer in residence at Berkeley when I was there. Okay. And he's worked on a ton of albums with artists like Joni Mitchell and Carla Blay and just yeah. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. So, so, you know, that's sort of its own little breathing entity is this idea of mentorship and influences and going to be like putting that together but yeah i think as far as something to take from the album for people who check it out is it's just it's sort of a representation of how how uh individuals influenced and it's it can kind of come from different places mm-hmm. it can come from a human being or it can come from just the song you heard that was just floored you yeah and so that's that's part of it yeah you know, and so, yeah, that's, you know, hopefully they, they enjoy it. Um, it's, it's great playing, yeah. amazing playing by a bunch of people who are yeah. really super incredibly talented mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, the, and it's just, you know, if anything, it's, if it inspires somebody to do something that they just can't help but do because of love for expressing themselves or whatever, go make something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. 
that's that's kind of what we're makers. We that's what we do. We yeah. we just make things. Yes, yeah. we do. So, so yeah, that would be probably like you know a good little parting thought is to go make things. Go make things. Yeah. I love it. Thanks so much, yeah. Lenny. All right, thank you. You take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Level with Emily. You can learn more about Lenny Moore and see a playlist. Also, you can support Level with Emily at patreon.com slash level. Check out the video of my chat with Lenny on the Level with Emily YouTube channel and please subscribe and get notifications to all our new videos. You won't miss anything that way. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services. Composer Brad Gentle manages our YouTube channel. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Inc. Here at Level with Emily, we're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. It features a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. You can hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.